Welcome to the 2021 podcast series of the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI, where we bring you interesting and hopefully entertaining and informative podcasts about a myriad of topics. I'm Aldon. Our theme today is the trauma of cervical cancer. Our first guest is Dr. Anne Kyo of the Psychological Society of Ireland. Anne is a senior clinical psychologist and a chartered member of the PSI, where she sits on the Society's Council. And Vicky Phelan, cervical cancer campaigner and woman's health advocate. You're both very welcome. If we start with Anne, like before we talk about the trauma of cervical cancer, can you explain to us exactly what trauma is, Anne? Sure. So trauma is what happens when a person experiences a significant or threatening event that causes them overwhelming amounts of stress. Um, And I guess really that stress has to be higher than the person's ability, their own ability to cope or process the emotions involved. So they could leave someone feeling helpless or hopeless or very afraid for their own safety. Um, and I suppose examples, there's lots of examples, anything can be really be traumatic, like bullying or violence or grief or any real situation where there's a physical threat or a psychological threat. Um, people can feel in shock, overwhelmed, not able to cope. Um, what I would say is that two people could react really differently to the same event. So the same thing can happen to people. And one person might be distressed and cope okay or well enough. And the other could be completely, you know, unable to cope or process what happened. So they could be having, you know, nightmares or um, low mood or some sort of, you know, bad effects from that. Um, it, it, the, how severe it is depends on what happens. So it does, you know, the event that happens can determine how severe someone will process, how they'll how they'll process that. Um, and it's different to stress. So stress is a normal physiological response to something difficult happening. But um, trauma then is when that is sort of overwhelming or too much. Um, and there can be triggers. I mean, something can remind a person of a traumatic time and cause them to kind of remember or go back to that time, which can be really difficult. What role does psychology and psychologists play in processing trauma? Psychologists, I guess, can be useful in the immediate aftermath. aftermath. So people can use a psychologist for debriefing at that time. Um, but generally, the best person, people to have around a person are their family and friends. So having space to process, using their current normal processing um, people, if you like. Um, then later on, if someone does struggle to cope, it's really about having space to share their thoughts. A psychologist can be useful, a neutral space, away from the pressure maybe to be better or to be over something, um, a safe space. They can sort of educate people on the different ways of coping. Sometimes people will be harsh on themselves and wonder, why did I do that in the moment? If they kind of froze or if they, um, you know, became angry or something. So a psychologist can offer a neutral space to get, to think about coping and why people coped the way they did. Um, there's different kinds of that. So emotional processing, experiential processing. Sometimes you take a person back to the time and the event in their head and go over you know, and help them reprocess that. We also look at the mental health piece. So if someone is um, really struggling because of it, we'd work on that with them um, and look at their strengths and their positive coping and all the rest of it. Vicky, if we can go to you, in your case, one of the traumas mm-hmm. you experienced was a diagnosis of cervical cancer. It's an enormous trauma for an individual to process. And then there were the circumstances following your diagnosis, which I'm sure everybody knows about, which added additional trauma. Talk to us about the psychological impact from uh, such a devastating cancer, how it has on a, on a woman and how you personally processed it. 
Yeah, I suppose um, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I was only 39 um, and I was relatively healthy, uh, very sporty, you know, ran marathons, um, drank a bit, never smoked. Um, so for me, when I got diagnosed with cancer, it was an absolute shock to the system. I really, you know, cancer happened to other people. You know, you know what I mean? Mm. Um, I never thought and you know, never thought that it would happen to me um, or if it did, that I would be older. You know, I really could not believe, really. And that was it. It was disbelief, I suppose, initially was my first reaction. I, I just couldn't believe how I could be, uh, you know, how I could have, you know, gotten diagnosed with cancer. And that was the first bit to kind of get over. And unfortunately, when you're diagnosed with cancer initially, um, particularly, you know, a, a fairly aggressive cancer like I had, um, you know, you, you jump very quickly into being diagnosed into starting treatment. There's not much time really between the diagnosis and the treatment starting. And you really have very little time to get your head around and process what's just happened. So you kind of just go straight into the treatment and you don't really have time to think about what's happening. You're just going along with the flow. And in some ways, treatment is a good thing. Um because you have a routine, you're going in for treatment, you know, you feel like you're, well, I felt like I handed it over to people. I handed it over to the oncologists and the nurses and the radiologists to look after me. Um, and I, I suppose at the time I believed, you know, I would, I would be cured from this. So I just kind of literally handed myself over to them and kind of almost switched off. I know that sounds terrible, but that's kind of what a lot of people do, which I've discovered because I just couldn't deal with it, to be quite honest. I couldn't deal with the fact that this was happening to me. So I just really tried to go through the motions and switch off. So you kind of go through different stages and that was the next stage. And then after that, it kind of started sinking in, you know, between the sickness and all the side effects that you're dealing with throughout treatment. Uh, when treatment stopped, my treatment was very quick. Some people go through a longer process of treatment, like particularly with breast cancer, it might take up to seven or eight months or longer. Uh, whereas with my treatment, I had the aggressive um, radiation and chemotherapy. Mm. And that only lasted six weeks. And after six weeks, I was done. It was kind of, you know, short and sharp. I was very sick, very ill, you know, um, in a lot of pain. Um, and it took months for that to kind of uh, to come around from it. But because the treatment was so quick and then all of a sudden you're kind of turfed out and there's nobody really to talk to, mm. you know, once you're finished treatment. And I found that very difficult because, like uh, Anne said, you know, you can talk to your family to a certain extent, but nobody really understood what I was going through. Mm. So I found that very isolating and very lonely. So I did speak to somebody um, and I found that helped because I think, you know, when you speak to somebody who you don't know, you can be more open and more honest about how you really are feeling. Because I was terrified, but of course, I couldn't tell my family that really, because I knew that would make them terrified. So it's kind of it's it's a, it's an awful situation to find yourself in. And I suppose particularly with the type of cancer I was diagnosed with, and it's one of the reasons why I speak so openly and graphically about it, is um, I really had no clue as to the extent of the side effects from uh, cervical cancer. So. For one straight away, I went into menopause at 39 years of age. Now, I was lucky. I had had my two children and I had no desire to have any more. But there are women who get diagnosed with this cancer at an earlier stage or at around my age who, who may not have had kids or, or who may have wanted more. And they have to get their head around that, that they're not going to be able to have any more children. Um, and that's a really hard thing to have to get your head around, as well as trying to go through treatment. The other thing then after treatment, when you're finished all the treatment, you know, Again, one thing I had, you know, I had no clue about before I was diagnosed with cervical cancer is the, the side effects from the cancer as far as your sex life is concerned. So some of the treatment is very aggressive um, 
and you have this internal radiation where they actually insert these applicators up your vagina to radiate whatever's left of the cancer. And for most women, um, there are some who persevere with it, but for most women, having sex again is almost an impossibility, to be quite honest. But that's not really spoken of until mm. you're really in the stages of um, coming back after treatment, kind of, you know, your hand is a leaflet. It's, you know, and, and that was another thing I found it very, very difficult to get my head around. So your sense of being a woman is really taken away from you. That's something that um, I would say most people are not really aware of. I mean, know a lot about different types of cancers and, mm. and, and the outcomes of them and, and whatever. Can we just, if we go back and to, to when mm-hmm. people are diagnosed initially and Vicky, uh, her her uh, outlook was, OK, let's get on with it and let's fight and beat this thing. Is that most people's reaction? Yeah, first of all, I think I have to, to take, thank Vicky for speaking so openly and honestly about it. I mean, there's so much strength in that for anyone else on that process and anyone else who didn't know about that process or what it meant to their family or friends or anyone involved. So I think it's extremely powerful. It has a transformative effect for people to hear the realities of this. So then when we come back to, to kind of coping, I think everybody copes differently. And of course they would with something like that. And that very much depends on what's available to them in their lives. Some people might tell no one, some people might tell everyone, some people might um, want to talk openly and honestly, and others want to keep you know certain things not known. So I think to, it, it's really tricky to talk about, as Vicky has said, I and mean, no doubt, but to hear that, a shared experience, a kind of a sense of community, a sense that you don't have to hide aspects of something from you know someone else has articulated that for you is so powerful and um, you know there's a lot of different ways people can cope very positively so there's really a, a shared sense of community you can hear that from when Vicky talks about finding a, a group who of sh- people who share these experiences and using her own you know coping strategies and people and um, one of which would be to speak openly and honestly to mm. inspire others to that it's okay to have whatever feelings you have um, you know, literally changing the face of healthcare for women who come after by prioritizing and talking so um, openly. It's amazing to see. Um, I think there's such a, the country is behind, you know, women in these experiences because the country didn't know, literally. People mm-hmm. don't know these things. They have no clue about how impactful they can be. So it's, it's, it's wonderful learning for everyone, I think, to hear I think, Vicky, if, if we go back as well, I mean, your internal fear that you can't tell people you're scared stiff of this as well. How difficult is it to, to hold that in? It's very difficult. Um, I suppose in my case, I had two young children at the time when I was first diagnosed. My son was only three, maybe almost four, and my daughter was nine. You know, so they were very young children at the time. So, I mean... At the same time, I did have to tell them that, you know, I was sick. And as Anne said, some, some people did it very differently. I, I have met women who did not tell their children they had cancer. Uh, I find that very strange because I suppose maybe just their way of coping, as Anne says, but I couldn't do that. I mean, my son, obviously, I wasn't going to tell him I had cancer. He wouldn't have known what that yeah. meant. But I did sit down and tell him that mommy was sick and she had a sore belly. And, you know, and I made it age appropriate. Whereas with my daughter, because she was nine and also because she has a medical condition and has been going in and out of hospital all her life, she's very tuned in. I knew I wouldn't be able to hide it from her. So I did explain it to her. Um, but I did find that, uh, you know, when I was going through treatment, it was very difficult Um 
and, and as a mother, you don't want your children to see you, you know, sick. Mm. And you don't want your children to see you kind of um, vomiting and lying down and not being able to get up and do stuff with them. And I found that very hard. Um, so I'd try and sleep during the day um, when they were gone to school and then try and get up when they were at home and, and, and be as normal as I could. But at the same time, you know, they were aware that I was sick. You know, I remember my son saying one stage, why is mommy always fed? You know, so kids pick up on these things anyway. So I think you're better off being open and honest with them but I definitely found it very difficult with my family particularly with my parents and my mother is an awful warrior anyway so you know I, I, I kind of held a lot of that myself um, so anytime I kind of felt a twinge or, or, or worried that I had a new lump you know I wouldn't tell a lot of people because I, I knew that they all start worrying as yeah. well and I didn't want that do you know what I mean and that's where support groups come in where you can talk to other women who are going through the same thing um, and, and that definitely is where that comes into its own, I think. And are, are do most people go to these support groups or are some people more, I suppose, more shy about going to them? Well, to be quite honest, there was no support group for women with cervical cancer before, you know, my case exposed mm. what happened in cervical check. And then we set up a support group for women. So um, there was nowhere for me to go before that. I would have spoken to a counsellor when I was going through treatment the first time and I joined an online support group that was actually based in the UK because I couldn't find one in Ireland you know so when it came to um, you know after my case um, uh, broke kind of the, the story open you know one of the things that myself and Stephen Teeth and other campaigner were adamant about was setting up a support group to help people and that's what we did and uh, we put in place kind of supports for a lot of different issues because women suffer from huge range of issues from this cancer mm. as I said one of the big ones was um, sexual support so there was you know we, we got in a sexual therapist another one was uh, incontinence problems like a lot of women end up you know with terrible incontinence problems after all the treatment uh, lymphedema so there's a whole range of issues and we would have gotten people in to talk to women and have workshops. And that was a huge, um, huge uh, support. Most of the women, you know, would have kind of given us feedback and said, you know, this this was absolutely invaluable to them. And it really is. And it, it just goes to show that it is so important to have support groups for, for different types of cancer. It has to be cancer appropriate because, you know, women going through a gyne, gyne cancer, um, you know, are not having the same type of symptoms yeah. as, as women that are going through breast cancer, for example. And if we can just go back to you, I mean, is there a specific way we process trauma? And as Vicky's processing or her trauma, is that a usual response? Yeah, I mean, like everyone is different, so like it depends on the person, and I think um, it depends on what supports they have available. It's sort of a sensory experience as well, so it depends on mm. what happened to them at the time that they were traumatized, and so what they need to go back over and how they need um, what they need to reprocess of that. Um, I think it can be different for kids as well. So like, you know, children are much more playful in the way they, um, you know, take in events and, and process events. So it's really, um, and kids process things through their parents, you know, they'll they'll use a parent's kind of how, is, how are they managing it to see how they should manage it. Um, what I would say if, if kids are going through a tough time is that every child goes through a tough time to varying degrees. Some are definitely exposed to more adversity than others. Um, and they have different coping themselves. And I think really what's the parent-child kind of in connection is the most powerful there is. It's the, it's the most powerful thing for helping a child through something, that relationship. Um, and that, you know, being supportive, caring, thinking about safety, we're all involved. Um, helping anyone process their feelings, you know, it's not really about what's wrong with you, but it's more about what happened to you is the way to kind of come at coping and um you know, help a person along as they do that. 
when we were researching the podcast, we came across trauma-informed care. What exactly is that? So trauma-informed care is, is exactly what it says. It's, it's care giving across the wider spectrum. So it could be in school, in the workplace, in hospitals, um, and really thinking about having everyone who inter- interacts with someone understand what trauma is and understand what that might mean. So someone could be coming in for their, you know, their, their checkup in, in a cancer hospital, if you like, and they could be completely traumatised by that experience, the mm. being in there or something like that, or same in a maternity hospital, anything really. So having all the staff involved and aware, even down to the doorman or the security guard, aware of what happens when someone is traumatized and how can you help people manage that? Because it can be very small situational triggers that really um, cause someone to, to struggle. It's looking at resilience. So for the person in the organization and about safety, really helping people feel safe, helping them have trust in their care when that can be challenging. Um, transparency, staff looking after each other, so staff well-being, you know, showing up to that kind of work can be tricky year after year, decade after decade. So really doing it compassionately, you know, looking after the service to look after the people who come to the service. So it's so important because um, generally COVID-19, the <coughs> traumatised in healthcare settings, people are traumatised in the justice system, there's high rates of trauma in schools, there, you know, depends. So. We need people to think about this and to be aware of it and to, to be aware of the basic impacts. And I think Vicky has changed things for women nationally on that front. It's literally amazing that people can understand the experiences that people are going through. And that, that is trauma-informed care, literally. Vicky, you were you were talking yeah. or you were talking earlier on about the, the supports not being there when when this this happened to you. There's more supports there now, I presume. Um yes. is there enough? Um, I don't think so. I don't think there's ever enough, mm. I suppose. You know, one of the things I found when I was diagnosed first, I remember, um, you know, when I knew I was going to have to have this treatment where I would be, you know, have this internal radiation. And it was then explained to me that, you know, I probably would have problems if I wanted to have sex again or um, also for internal exams. So you're handed this little bag of dilators. Uh, they're these little hard silicone or not silicone, sorry, hard solid plastic um, dilators and what you're supposed to do is use them from the smallest size up to, to keep your vagina open and, and I mean people are shocked when I tell them this and I, I remember at the time when the nurse sat me down to, to hand this little bag of dilators to me to explain why I needed them I, I was absolutely I, I, I can't explain how I felt I was there I, I read this leaflet and I was talking to her and I said to her so I said what happens afterwards? I said, when all this treatment is done and, you know, I try and return to some kind of normality after this and maybe my husband and I want to resume some kind of a sex life. I said, well, wh- where's the support? And she kind of just looked at me and she said, well, you know, um, she handed me a card. She said, we, you know, we have a couple of you know sexual therapists that you can see. Um, and I said to her, OK, I said, do I come here? And she said, no, no, that would be privately. <laughs> and that was it. I, I said, OK, so how much are you talking about? And she said, well, I think sometime, you know, somewhere between 70 and 80 euros an hour. And at the time, my husband was out of work. I was the only one working. And for me, that was absolutely mm-hmm. out of my, um, you know, budget. There's no way I would have been able to afford it. So one of the big things that I have been, you know, trying to get uh, across the board and, and we're getting there, the Irish Cancer Society has brought uh, put in place a huge um, support system now for women across the board with gynec cancers um, for sexual you know sexual support for women who need it and 
what they've also done is they've replaced the dilators. I mean, one of the things I had a huge problem with was these were solid, hard plastic dilators that they were asking women to put inside their vagina, which has already been traumatized. I said, why can't they be silicone? Obviously, silicone were more expensive, but mm. nobody ever consulted women or got feedback from women on how invasive these things were. So now uh, women are provided silicone dilators. But it took something like this to, you know, to make it more women centered. So that's another thing that we were trying to make is get more feedback from women on the type of trauma that they're um, experiencing from a gynae cancer in particular in order to inform the care going forward. So that is happening. But again, you know, it's taking a while to filter down across the country, really. Is part of the problem here that that a lot of these things are designed by men? Yes, uh, similar, 100%. like if if men had babies, it wouldn't be half as painful <laughs> at this stage. If if because something would have been developed to make it a little bit easier, is that the part of the issue? Yes, it is. Unfortunately, that's absolutely what it is. Because I remember bringing this up at uh, one of the meetings with the Department of Health and with the HSE about the dilators, because I was absolutely adamant about this issue that this had to be changed, and you know, women should be provided with silicone ones because they were they were on the market. And I said, why? they not been provided and you know I had all these men it was all men mm. except for me and uh, one other woman that was sitting there with another patient like me with cervical cancer and they just they had no clue they had absolutely no clue that this was an issue and I said because you've never asked you've never asked a woman whether this is an issue or not so you know it, it's terrible that it has to come from women who have been traumatized to make things better you know but unfortunately that is the way it is with a lot of things isn't it Absolutely. Um, just to move on, as a mother, a daughter, I mean, you, you have family relationships. How are the family relationships impacted by your trauma? Um, you know what? I mean, some good things have come out of this cancer in that, uh, you know, you really know who your friends are. And I suppose I've been very lucky. I've always had a very supportive family. My parents have been fantastic um, to me through my whole life. I mean, this isn't the first thing I've had that has happened to me, unfortunately. You know, I've had a number of incidences and quite traumatic ones over my life. And my parents have always been there and this was no different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it has strengthened. It has strengthened. I think a lot of people would say that after trauma, you know, it really strengthens a lot of relationships and it has done with mine, with my with my family. And uh, other relationships, obviously, you know, have suffered, such as my relationship with my husband. Um, you know, we were now separated. Um, and that's another thing that one this cancer, uh, you know, has a huge impact on, on the relationship between uh, husbands and wives or partners um, because of the fact that most women are either too traumatized to try and have sex again or um, if they do um, they can't get past the pain or they're too embarrassed to talk about it with their husbands and and equally men are terrified about touching their wives you know there's a huge there's a, a big piece in there to help educate men as well and that's mm. one of the things that we've built into with the support group so it's 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 a big you know and one of the things that we try and say to all of the women is you know don't be embarrassed i think there's a huge problem in this country with stigma you know and being sh- ashamed you know being ashamed about talking about these things but why should we be ashamed you know it's happened to your body um you know it's nothing you've no control over it uh, and it's not it's nothing to be ashamed about to be able to talk about these things and share the problems with other women who are going through it I think that that's probably part of the problem because um, it, it's not something that's discussed at this level on the radio every day or in, in the newspapers every day. How do you educate people more? I, I No, I do think it's changing, I have to say. I think, you know, the very first interview I gave was with Mary O'Callaghan mm. on the radio on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and I was talking about my vagina, uh, which, you know, you wouldn't expect to hear on a Sunday morning <laughs> radio show. But I was absolutely inundated with uh, messages, as was Miriam and her producers. Uh, so women 
need to hear this and want to hear this. So that, you know, that kind of was the first indicator to me at that time uh, that this needs to be spoken about. So I suppose I felt that the first time I started speaking about this, I felt a little bit uncomfortable, you know, I have to say. Mm. And it is that Irish thing. But now I don't care because I, I know it's helping women. And if it helps even one woman to, to normalize what's happening to her, uh, it's worth it as far as I'm concerned. And I think the more we talk about this and normalize it, the better it will be for everybody. And just I suppose just to pick up on Vicky's point that I think it really is changing things nationally for the conversation and for women. And that's good to hear. And can trauma impact development in children? How do you support children to manage trauma? Um, children all manage very differently in their and how they cope with trauma. I think um, it depends on what has happened in their lives before. It depends on the resources they have available to them. The parents are really important for that. Mm. Um, and they look to the, the people around them, their caregivers, their parents, for how they should manage things. Um, you know, some kids, unfortunately, go through a lot in their lives. And I think it does change your brain development and your wiring. Um, you can be kind of very aware of threat after something like that. But I guess good, safe relationships, um, you know, nurturing, love, kindness, compassion, people who understand what that means to have been through what they've been through and being clear about that. You know, people are generally, you know, they're not bold, they're reacting to their systems, they're reacting to their environments. So being kind of thinking about that, thinking about children from a trauma-informed perspective. Um, and I think having the conversation is really important. So I think um, you're thinking about the wider impacts, as Vicky's mentioned, like on her, her all of her relationships. Some for the better, they've strengthened wonderfully, which is amazing. And, and plenty are, you know, really um, become have challenges because of everything that she's been through. Um, and then across your li- her life as well. So really thinking about like Thomas, maybe as a child yourself, Vicky, or, or as, you know, as a young adult, um, it's amazing to see and even hear you speak so openly about them for other people to think about their lives and how maybe things they went through as kids have impacted how they manage things that happened as adults, mm-hmm. you know, and, and how they're resilient or, or more vulnerable to something happening because of how life has gone for them. Um, it's amazing to hear. It's very unusual. I think um, this is really changing the landscape of conversation around this nationally and internationally for it being represented, you know, what is the real individual experience? What are the key moments within that when someone hands you plastic dilators that you can't literally take in? I mean, how is that even possible to hear you speak openly about that and to have people actually sit back and think, well, what would that be like? How would anybody cope with that? You know, can we change that? So literally being an advocate for change for women coming down the line, causing people to have to stop and think, why does that happen? You know, why do we do that to women? Why haven't we been listening to them about their care? Because no doubt you weren't the first person to think, you know, why does this have to be? <laughs> but perhaps we're the, the most listened to person who advocated so strongly for it um, and literally changed the world for people to come after, you know, and cause the rest of us to consider those issues. You know, hopefully many people don't have to thread that road, but it is worth knowing and considering and thinking about women's health care in general. Um, yeah, gone off there off topic, but uh, I just think it's so important. It's fine, Vicky. Um, you you've been doing this for a while now. You've been sharing your story. You become a public figure. Does that take a toll? Oh yeah, it does. It does take a toll at times. Um, I suppose I've learned to step back from it a lot now. Um, I'll, I only uh, take on things when I feel I can. Um, I think at the very start I was probably taking on far too much, and I was trying to do every interview or. 
um, you know, speak up um, on a lot of different things. And it really was exhausting. Mm. So I think I, I got very sick in February of 2019 and I spent a week in hospital and that kind of put a stop to me, you know, and it, it gave me time to think. And I kind of thought, you know what, I'm not going to be any good to anybody if I'm going to be sick or dead, uh, you know, mm. basically. So I had to really reevaluate what I was doing and I really just prioritized the things I needed to talk speak up about um, and I do a lot of stuff now in the background rather than me speaking out all the time um, but I do like to do things like this because um, I think it's very important for me it's very important to speak up and uh, uh, for anything to do with the public so where people are listening um, because a lot of people can't afford to go to um, a lot of maybe big talks or can't afford to pay a psychologist or maybe can't afford to you know pay for this you know th different things so where anything is free and freely available for anyone that might want to listen to it I will always kind of um, do those type of talks or big like for example I did a, a uh, a talk got in the days before COVID at a women and agricultural conference. It was 650 women at it. And I remember when I, I always ask who's it for and who's going to be there. And when I was told it was going to be all women and all women from an agricultural background, I'm from a very small farming village. Now I'm not farming background myself, yeah. but I know a lot of my friends are, and I know they're the worst people in the world, particularly the women for ever kind of, you know, complaining or talking about anything serious. So that was straight away. I thought, yeah, I'm definitely doing that one because these women, you know, I have 650 women here in front of me. Yeah. Hopefully some of them will take something from it. So I always pick and choose ones where I think uh, the target audience, like, you know, particularly women or young girls, I do a lot of schoolwork um, or, or public talks like this because it's important to get the message out there. Um, and if it helps just one woman, I think it's worth it, to be honest. And that's why I do it. You, you always come across as being upbeat and positive. Anytime I've heard you or seen you doing things, you always come across as being positive. Is that difficult to stay positive? No, you know, it's funny. I was never, I wouldn't say I was never this positive. Um, I probably wasn't ever this positive. And I don't know. The only way I can explain it is I think when you get to a point where you know your life is coming to an end or that there's a, a time limit, um, you know, you have to appreciate every mm. single day for what it is because you don't know how long you've got. When you don't have that kind of um, time frame or, 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 or that tick time, that clock ticking, it's very easy to just be, you know, complain about every little small thing in your life. I mean, I would have been exactly the same as everybody else. Don't get me wrong. Oh, but complaining, you know, complaining I, is fun I'd as well. Hate, well, you know, I'd hate people to think I'm a saint. I'm not. <laughs> you know, I was exactly the same. I was had the same worries as everybody else. I would have been very career driven and, you know, wanted to get up that ladder and would have sacrificed some time with my kids. I don't do that anymore because mm. time is more important to me. Do you know what I mean? But I think it's terrible that it took me to get to this stage of my life to appreciate the small things. And that's what I often say to people, you know, and it's easy to say in my position, because I know I've been there where everybody else is, where, uh, you know, you, you think you have all this time, but, you know, unfortunately, when you get to a stage like mine where you don't, you know, you have to appreciate everything um, and, and take the small wins where you can, you know, and I've been very lucky. I've, you know, I've only been in hospital once that one week in February, 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, other than that, I've been, you know, very well, you know, mostly I have days where I'm not well, but I just, you know, I take them as they come and go to bed if I have to. But generally, I've been well and I've been very lucky. So I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for every day I get that I can go out and do stuff and spend time with my kids. Uh, finally, Anne, if we can just go back to you and to get back to trauma, what advice would you have for people going through a trauma now? Um, I think trauma is relative so there's no kind of qualifier on that it can be whatever it is to you to the person 
And, I, and like Vicky said, I would say to them to reach out so that it's okay not to be okay. It's really okay to need help. Um, you know, start by telling one person or, or someone you trust, a friend, be as open and honest as you can. Use Vicky for inspiration on that. Um, and then there are a lot of supports out there, like support groups, helplines, and people whose job it is to listen, who have nothing else to worry about but just to listen to you wherever you're at. Um, and that, that there are times in all of our lives filming when we will need professional help. You know, go to your GP, find one you trust, talk to them. Um, individually in the moment I would say take it back to the basics of sleeping and eating like when you can do nothing else do something in the direction of helping yourself to sleep or or to eat somehow to keep going moment to moment second by second if it is at the time um, ground yourself you know think about what soothes you what do you need it can be really simple things like what listen to your body what does it want it wants to walk it wants to rest you know it wants to be cozy whatever Whatever you can find that could help you right there and then, take it, get it, ask for it. Um, it's just so important. And um, yeah, it's amazing to hear, Vicky, you speak about like really what is post-traumatic growth, like you've been through so much and actually how it has sharpened your focus in your life back to what you need and want to think about um, and what it's all about. You know, the rest of us are wasting time on <laughs> nonsense, absolute nonsense. And like, it's wonderful to see after everything that you've been through that you enjoy your life and that you love how it is and, and enjoy your everything that you do. Um, so good to hear. We'll leave it there. Thanks, it's Ed. been a privilege to speak to Vicky Phelan. And thank you, Vicky, for speaking so openly about your own personal experience of trauma. Uh, we also heard from Dr. Anne Kyo of the Psychological Society of Ireland. That was the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast, the final episode in the 2021 series. If you want any more information, you can check out the website www.psychologicalsociety.ie. We'll see you soon. <laughs>